bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean, and this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Leo Berinsky was a playwright, screenwriter, and director. He worked in Austria-Hungary, Germany, and the United States. Berinsky was the screenwriter of many Hollywood productions, including Song of Songs, starring Marlena Dietrich, the Lady Has Plans, starring Paulette Goddard, and perhaps his most famous, Matahari, starring the screen legend Greta Garbo, who we will discuss here today. Until recently, only a minimal amount of information about his life was available. In addition, there were many legends and rumors concerning Berinsky's person, some of them even spread by himself. For example, the false report of his suicide in 1920 even found its way from the newspaper obituaries into encyclopedias. But it wouldn't be until 1951 that Berinsky actually died. At that time, he was alone and penniless, interred for all eternity on Hart Island. Lois Banner is an American author and retired professor of history from the University of Southern California. She received her doctorate from Columbia University. She's the author of the textbook, Women in Modern America, A Brief History, which is commonly used in introductory women's studies classes at the university level. She helped found the Berkshire Conference on the History of Women at Rutgers University. And she's also the author of the book, the Mystery Woman of Hollywood, Greta Garbo, Feminism, and Stardom. And Professor Banner, thank you very much for being a guest on Talking to Heart Island. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, uh, as I mentioned to you offline, I know next to nothing about modern feminist theory or, or any other feminist theory, but I w wondered if you could talk a little bit about another one of your books, uh, biography of Marilyn Monroe, and why she was of interest to you, and I guess how she connects to feminism. I wrote about Marilyn Monroe because it seemed to me that she was uh, 
a tremendous temptress and the opposite of what feminists wanted. So I was fascinated in working 10 years on her life that, in fact, the opposite was just as true, that she was a radical in politics, that uh, she embodied a kind of new feminist uh, agenda, and that her very use of sex had a feminist, partly feminist end to it. So she emerges in my work as a very different person from what anyone else has uh, said about her in the books that they have written. What do you mean by she was a radical in politics? Before she died, she had embraced the Communist Party and was a supporter of Fidel Castro in Cuba. She grew up in a working-class family, and they were strong supporters of FDR and strong anti-racists. And she embodied, imbued all of those ideas as a child, and they stayed with her throughout her life. And then, of course, she married Arthur Miller, who was himself not a communist, but a leftist. And so she absorbed his ideas, too. And some of that is apparent in her films. If you look very closely, you can see it. Which films? Well, if you look at the last one, uh, her last film was The Misfits. You can see some of the radical ideas in there as she tries to stop the three cowboys from killing the Mustangs in the deserts uh, near Reno. And that kind of an attitude is there. And in all of her films, she is often cast against very weak men, where she is the person who's the real strong individual. And you can really see that in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, where she, by and large, she controls the whole action of the movie. The um, parts of her life, you mentioned the the marriage to Arthur Miller, also Joe DiMaggio, of course, Um, her connections to the Kennedys. Did you get into that when you were writing the book? Yes. Oh, yes. I I studied the whole Kennedy involvement. That was very sad on on her part. By that point, she had believed she could do anything because she was a star. That was one of the unfortunate uh, effects of stardom on the women who were stars. She felt that she had the power over any man possible, and so she met... The, um, Jack Kennedy early in her career because his father had been a major player in Hollywood and Jack Kennedy was out in Hollywood himself and he almost married Jean Tierney, a star, and he, he did have affairs or what one might call one night stands with starlets. And that was early in Marilyn's career in Hollywood in the uh, late 50s. You're talking about uh, the old man, Joe Kennedy, the father? Yeah, 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 the father, Joe Kennedy. Yeah, he, he, he was very involved in Gloria, with Gloria Swanson, and he had uh, actually gotten involved in establishing a studio. Do you have a, any relationship with Greta Garbo, who we're going to discuss here in a minute? Not Joe Kennedy, no, no. Uh-uh. Okay. It so- would seem that it might, but no, they never did. She's a little earlier and didn't. He, he, wait, I take it back. She met... Jack Kennedy on one occasion in the White House, but nothing happened. So let's bring in Greta Garbo. Okay. Um, Talk about her life and career, and and why was she the mystery woman? Oh, (laughs) it was all made up. 
Um, she was born in a in great poverty in Stockholm, Sweden, in a working class household. There were six adults living in three rooms in great poverty. She managed to transcend all of that, if, if you want to call it transcending, but she moved uh, into wanting to be an actress and eventually got herself admitted to the Royal Dramatic Academy, Swedish Royal Dramatic Academy in Stockholm, where she was seen by a great filmmaker, Amoritz Stiller who more or less fell in love with her and then promoted her career and brought her to Hollywood in 1925 to MGM. He was eventually fired by MGM, but then she went on to become a star. And it was really her foreign exoticism, which was very popular in films in the 1920s. It was that foreign exoticism that made her into a star. And she played in, always mostly had it in her films. And it, it's really, Mata Hari, it probably is the extreme of Greta playing an exotic, mysterious foreign woman. She, the whole thing about her mystery image that was all made up, because she gave terrible interviews. Marvelous on the screen. Her interviews, which I've read and seen with reporters, are really bad. <laughs> she, had no, she had no talent in that regard, which is strange, but it's true. What, so what, in order, I'm sorry, in no, order for her to avoid reporters, which she really wanted to do because she was excessively shy, they just created her as the mystery woman and she wouldn't talk to anybody, any of the reporters. And so fans became desperate to find out about her past and her present and, and what she thought. And it worked like a charm. I think you said earlier that uh, Marilyn Monroe and Greta Garbo had like a connection you just um, I, explain what that is? Well, they, I don't think they ever met. I've tried to find that out. I can't find uh, examples of any meetings, but they were similar in many ways. They were both extremely shy. They both had terrible childhoods. They both had this sort of aura on the screen, this magic thing, which is sometimes called photogeneity. They both had that. They both were often childish in their films. Now, that's known about uh, Marilyn. It's not known about Greta. But in some of her films, not in Matahari, but in some of her films, she played as though she was a very shy and childish woman. That's in Wild Orchids. She's very uh, childlike. And they're childlike scenes in, of all things, Anna Christie where she plays a Swedish prostitute in New York. She's got some very childish scenes in that film. What do you mean by childish? Can you explain that? Sort of shy, jokey, playful, the sort of things you would expect in a, in a young girl. Still in a tomboy phase or young phase, you will see it sometimes in her films. And her friends said off screen that was her primary persona. She was mostly like a child off the screen. And of course, Garbo was led by others. She almost always had mentors who told her what to do. She didn't like to make decisions. Like Marilyn, she had a, a manic and a depressive side to her personality. And Garbo became increasingly mentally withdrawn as she grew older, putting the decisions about her films into other people's hands. And Marilyn also did that to a certain ex extent. Um, and all the 
years when her coach, Natasha Lytest, basically directed her in her films and more or less advised her on what to do. So there are those similarities between the two of them, which are surprising until you go into the sources on her and the what her friends have to say about her in their autobiographies and memoirs. And then you begin to realize that Greta, too, had some of the characteristics of Marilyn. Marilyn was a totally constructed persona. She had she was a brilliant mime as was Greta, and Marilyn created herself. The dumb blonde was a total creation. It, it was not really the real Marilyn, nor was the, um, the tremendously languorous sexual person that Greta Garbo created. That was not really the actual Garbo either. She created it. And that's based on her personal life? It was so much different than what she portrayed on the screen? Who, uh, in the Gre- case Gre- of... Greta Garbo. Uh, Greta Garbo. Yeah, well, her personal life was, um, had certain similarities to what she portrayed on the screen, but it also had a lot of differences. Uh, such as? Well, she was ch- uh, very childish off the screen. She probably had affairs with many men. One of the major things I've done with regard to Greta Garbo is that I managed to secure her letters to her childhood lesbian sweetheart, uh, a relationship with, which lasted for much of her life. I translated those letters, and it's fascinating that she never fell out of love with this woman who was an actress on the Swedish stage and whom she had met in drama school when she was in her 18, 18 19, early 20s. Can you drop a few names of some of the men she had affairs with? Oh, <laughs> well, that's really hard to do because they, they, everyone was claiming they had affairs with her. I am convinced she had a very long affair with Jack Gilbert, who was the major male star of the late 1920s, the inheritor of Rudolph Valentino's mantle. That affair lasted a fair amount of time. And then, of course, she is reputed to have had affairs with every single one of her co-stars, which most of which isn't true. The best candidate among the co-stars is a director named Ruben Mamoulian, whom she may or may not have had an affair with. She, after Jack Gilbert, who was right in the middle of Hollywood, uh, my estimation is that she preferred offbeat men because she herself, in her private life, was uh, very offbeat, very eccentric. She didn't run with the Hollywood crowd at all. Her friends were mostly in the European communities in Hollywood. What happened to her later in life? Greta Garbo, well, she, she was always, always afraid of being poor. She then was very, very frugal, and uh, she amassed a fortune. Through her salary, which was very large, she didn't spend much of it. And she also became involved with men who really knew how to uh, invest. So with her close friend, Gaylord Hauser, she bought up much of downtown Beverly Hills at a time when the property there was very cheap. She had investments all over the country. She had investments in Sweden. Her uh, male friends in Sweden told her what to invest in. So she wound up 
one of the wealthiest women in the world, and then she was in the circle around Aristotle Onassis, who they all had these huge yachts that they kept off the south coast of uh, France, where the great resorts were, and she became a big celebrity. She resigned, literally resigned from her studio, MGM, in 1942, and left Hollywood and went to New York, and she never made another film. And she then went back and forth from Europe, with uh, developed a glittering set of friends, and finally the Onassis crowd included her. So she, I don't think she was ever happy in her whole life. I believe that she suffered from serious manic depressive disorder. She did go to psychiatrists, to help her with it. And at one point, she was taking, uh, I'm pretty sure, amphetamines from a doctor in New York, but that wasn't unusual among wealthy people in those days. But really, her uh, ability to feel sad and insecure is amazing. <laughs> I've never, her letters are filled, not the early letters to the early lover, but from the uh, Stockholm Theater, but later letters to friends. They are very depressed, very depressed. So she suffered from physical problems. She had very bad anemia all her life. She had a pelvic disorder that she never really got over. And she also was off and on anorexic from all the dieting. You know, the stars had to diet to keep thin. And she dieted too much. And there were points at which, one point in particular in 1920, about 1927, in which she broke down completely from not eating enough. Did she ever marry? No. She wanted to marry. She later on in life regretted it. But her mentor, early in her career, whom she... I don't know, later, I think, came to be very much in love with. Once he died, she was really in love with him. But that's what it still her. He told her she could never be a great star and be married. And she kind of never got over that advice. She may have been sexually abused in childhood, which made her not exactly want to marry a man. And then later, in later years, she wanted to marry a man named George Schlee, S-C-H-L-E-E. But he was married to one of her best friends, and he would never divorce his wife to marry her. It's kind of a a curious story. But the best I can say is that those people in high society in those years, those that were hanging around Onassis and others, they did what they wanted. So menages, menages between three people were not unusual in that crowd. Although we might consider them amoral, immoral, unusual. They they went ahead and did this. And I don't think her fans ever knew about it. They never knew about the uh, lesbian affair uh, with uh, the name of the lesbian lover was Mimi Pollock. And you've, I'm sure you've never heard of her. And I'm sure none of your listeners have heard of her, except people in, in Sweden may have heard of her because she was a star on the Swedish stage for a while. How did she die? Okay, how did she die? She had a kidney ailment. That's technically what she died from. She was in her 80s when she died. She lived a very long life, partly because she exercised a huge amount. She walked. Uh, in her earlier years, she swam 
all the time. She rode horseback, so she kept her weight down through those kinds of activities. Then when she hit her 80s, she chain-smoked her whole life. I am convinced that's ultimately what killed her, was the chain-smoking. And, you know, it eventually uh, began to uh, hurt all of her organs and move from the lungs. She had a bronchial problem, probably pulmonary lung disease, which I don't know that they diagnosed that in her day, but they did know that she had a lung problem. And then she got kidney disease. Some people say that she was drinking too much in her later years. Her friends, in their reminiscences, mostly disputed that, but uh, there is other evidence that she was, in fact, buying a great deal of vodka and drinking it alone at home. Uh, she'd moved to New York by that point and lived in a very elegant, swanky apartment on the Upper East Side of New York. I want to, uh, in the few minutes we have left, I want to shift gears uh, uh-huh. to uh, a website I happened to I happened upon called Veteran Feminist of America. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, you you had a quite a, a very interesting uh, contribution where in there you described yourself as a 1970s radical feminist. Uh-huh. I want to do two things. Tell me what that is or was, and how is that uh-huh. any different than being a radical feminist today? Oh, well, it's all come back again. It means that the real problem for women is the patriarchal structure of society and women's bodies are victimized. That's what I believed in the, the 70s, and that was called radical feminism then. Now it's reemerged in the Me Too movement. Uh-huh. Pretty similar thing that men control women's bodies or powerful men in particular really try to control women's bodies. And that's what causes the basic problem for women. But it's fascinating to me because for several decades it was believed that women's power lay in their bodies and that women should use their sexual sexuality to control men. And then it's been turned on its head, and now once again it's believed that it is the objectifying, what's called the objectifying of women in advertisements and by powerful men in the film industry, in the fashion industry, in a lot of industries. That's what causes the problems for women. At the same time, it's argued that, well, this is kind of subsidiary, because I always worked on men, not just women, because I've, I've been married three times, and I have a son, and I really feel for men and their predicaments. And so that, too, my radical feminism, I felt that we should work on the way men were socialized in modern culture to be powerful and to be in control. So, and that this whole socialization should somehow be changed and that everyone should be respectful of everyone else. That was kind of the way I interpreted it. In your, in your courses, Women in Modern America, what is the theme there? Um, well, I would, uh, in uh, Women in Modern America, it got uh, more complicated over time because I would include ethnic women, I would include racial women, black women, Mexican women. It was basically a history course where I would, you know, talk about their histories and what their histories were and where there was oppression and where the women were uh, asserting themselves and where they were powerful. I would never say that women were the only victims. Men can be victims, too, certainly of emotional 
uh, battering, and there there is uh, husband battering as well as wife battering. That is known. It's much less than wife battering, but it does exist. So I was always trying to sense it because I had a lot of men in my courses. Oh, yeah, I also taught the history of homosexuality. <laughs> and... Um, had a lot of men in my courses. And at one point, you won't believe this, at one point, the entire USC football team was in my class. That was so amusing. I couldn't figure out what they were doing there, learning how to be sensitive and sweet. I used to give a lecture on the history of football that was kind of funny, just to 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 tweak the curiosity of all those football players as to what I was talking about. Why were they there? <laughs> I never could figure it out. The course was not overly easy. I couldn't figure out what they were doing there. Some of them were very good students. And the quarterback of the USC football team came to my office and said, I got a B on the last examination. How do I get an A? That was amazing. He was very bright. And I talked to him for a long time. And I finally said to him, well, I said, you can try harder. But frankly, I think so much of your time is taken up in practice that would be very hard for you to get top grades. That is funny. Well, Professor uh, Banner, uh, time flies when you're having fun. And I want to <laughs> thank you for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. And as we say goodbye to you, We've managed to put together, oh, about a one-minute montage of one of Greta Garbo's most iconic lines and the different uh, movies she was in. And that line is, of course, I want to be alone. So thank you very much, Professor Banner. My pleasure. I want to be alone. We want to be alone. But one day I shall find myself alone. I want to be alone. I shall probably be quite alone. Maybe you'd rather be alone. We were afraid you might be getting pretty lonely. You seem so lonely, Yvonne. No more than usual. I just want to be alone. You want to be alone, comrade? No. The sentiment followed her throughout life. But Garbo herself told a friend, I never said I want to be left alone. I only said I want to be let alone. There is all the difference. I think, she said, I've never been so tired in my life. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. Mm -hmm.